Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Just and the Suffering podcast featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. I got a good show for you today. The NBA season is upon us. We're going to talk some New York Knicks. I'm going to be joined in a bit by Rob Wolkenbrod, who covers the Knicks on Daily Knicks for Fansided. He will be talking with me about some of the big headlines surrounding the Knicks as they begin their season. A lot of changes for them in the offseason. A lot of interesting ideas to discuss. We will talk about that with Rob in just a bit. Show me the money. NFL picks for week eight also coming up in this podcast. I'll be joined by Ian Sachs to do those picks. That's coming up later in the show. Make sure you're locked in until the end for this week's two-minute drill where I review the latest 30 for 30 film, Chuck and Tito. I have some thoughts on this film. It's an interesting watch, I will say. I have my thoughts coming up at the end of the show, but we'll get it all started this week's opening tip where we recap the end of the Yankee season fall out from that touch a little on the world series but i'm not going to nuts on that but that's coming up right after this all right we are back to the opening tip that call is her courtesy of fox sports is joe buck Jose Altuve with the walk-off homer against Aroldis Chapman in Game 6 of the ALCS to send the Houston Astros to the World Series and deliver an absolutely brutal, brutal end to the Yankee season. I remember last week on the podcast, we were talking with Will Schneider and Anthony Sarbellini about which walk-off loss was worse, the Brave loss in Game 5 where they were buried at the jump, or the Dodger loss where they had the lead, Clayton Kershaw gave up the lead, and then... They blow the game extra innings on Howie Kendrick hits the grand slam. I think this one might be worse than both of those. This is absolutely brutal way to go out because throughout the game, the Yankees fall behind early in game six. They the bullpen doesn't get off to a good start. They end up trailing four two, and then in the ninth inning, DJ LeMahieu comes through in the clutch, two run home run to tie the game. And you're like, cool, we're right back in this game. This is great. We can get we can finally sneak this out. We get to Game 7, and anything can happen in Game 7, right? Who knows? I know Gary Cole was staring him down, but maybe he has an off day like Verlander did at the beginning of Game 5. You get lucky, and before you know it, you're on your way to the World Series. But then, Bob and Ith, a roll as Chapman, comes in, gets two outs pretty quick, loses Springer on the walk, Altuve comes up and just drills this ball to, to deep left field and out, and just like that, your season is over. And that is a miserable way to go out. I have empathy for the Yankee fans right now. That's absolutely brutal because you just got your hopes right back up when you you thought you were going to lose. You get that momentary tease or you're right back in the game and then you get the ball pulled out from under you again. That's a brutal way to lose. And now the Houston Astros, once again, the Yankees boogeyman. Third time in five years the Astros end their season because everybody remember 17 with the uh, – ALCS matchup there where the Astros win in seven. But people forget in 15, the Astros, at the beginning of their run here, uh, beat the Yankees at Yankee Stadium in the wild card game. So the Astros become the Yankees' uh, big bullies over here. And a lot went wrong for them in this series for the Yankees. I mean, outside of Glaber Torres and DJ LeMahieu and a little bit of Aaron Judge, nobody hit a lick in this series. Edwin Encarnacion, after a big ALDS against the Twins, was a disaster. Brett Gardner did not hit. Gio Urshela, outside of a couple of isolated moments, did not hit. 
Didi Gregorius did nothing. This was a complete team disaster offensively. The bullpen, Adam Adovino, carried over the struggles from the ALDS. Was a mess this entire series. The starting pitching. Outside of Masahiro Tanaka in Game 1, James Paxton in Game 5 gave you pretty much nothing either. But this is not to say that the Astros just completely outclassed them. The Astros did not hit much either. For most of the series, outside of George Springer and Carlos Correa, no one was hitting the baseball. And it makes you question, why did the Astros get through? Why did they find the way to get through when the Yankees had a superior bullpen a lot that was just as good. Yes, they cleared disadvantage in the starting pitching department, but this team won 103 games in the regular season. They won only two less than the Astros, so they should have been able to compete. The problem here, I think, number one, I think the Astro pitching is that much better, as we saw with Justin Verlander in Game 2, as we saw Garrett Cole, who had pretty much nothing in Game 3 and was basically... Still found a way to tour at the Yankees in his one start in the series. The starting pitching is that much better, and they're built to win the postseason. They have more contact hitters. They play great defense. They are clutch. That is a great recipe to win, and that's why they are back in the World Series for the second time in three years. The Yankees, you wonder about some things. The starting pitching, which has been a problem for a couple of years now. Brian Cashman's track record bringing in starters has been very, very spotty. I mean, Tanaka has been good. Paxton, he had a great game five. So you hope he's the key in the future, but they did not add a big arm off the deadline. You wonder now, looking back in retrospect, was that a mistake? Was that a point where the Yankees could have gotten a guy in here they did not, and now they are going home? You wonder about that. You also wonder about this lineup. The fact that this team crushed the baseball in the regular season, crushed the Twins, but when the Astros came calling with their pitching that they went silent. The bats did nothing. Is it enough to say the whole team went in a slump on the ALCS, aside from DJ and Glaber Torres? It's possible. You could say that. But you wonder if this team, the way it's built, with its increasing reliance on power, because they were right up there with the Twins in terms of home runs hit to lead the league this year. You wonder if that's a recipe that's going to get you a bunch of wins in the regular season when you're playing a ton of bad baseball teams who don't have big league quality pitching at the at, throughout their rotation. Is that the recipe that gets you to the playoffs, but not necessarily to the top? Because remember, after the Yankee dynasty in the from the 96 to 2001, that after that team... They shifted more towards the let's get sluggers every position and crush the baseball mode with Jason Giambi and Gary Sheffield and A-Rod and all that. That group never really won anything. After Giambi and Sheffield left, I mean, the A-Rod core won one in 2009, but they have not been back to the World Series since. This group did not go to the World Series in the 2010 decade, which the first time since the 1910s that the Yankees did not make a World Series in a decade, which is a remarkable run of brilliance for them. But for most teams, that would be something. For the Yankees, that's failure. Because the Yankees are measured on championships. The fact that they did not even get to compete for one in 10 years, when 12 other teams made the World Series this decade, 
including the Kansas City Royals twice, including the Mets, including the Chicago Cubs, including the Cleveland Indians. All those teams made the World Series. The Yankees did not. And again, it goes back to, I think, we are such an interesting position with them compared to where they were just two years ago after the first Astro loss when they had this young nucleus coming together of all these young guys. Remember, this is when Aaron Judge was Rookie of the Year. Didi has his breakout year. Gary Sanchez is bombing home runs. They didn't have Glaber Torres yet, that team. They had Starlin Castro starting at second base. That team was coming together as a group, and then this big changes start coming. They let Joe Girardi go. Aaron Boone comes in, and he's been doing good so far, but 0 for 2, 0 for 2 in the postseason. Just keep that in mind. The big change, though, Giancarlo Stanton comes in. And this is a move at the time when he's coming off a 59 home run season for the Marlins. When he wants to get out of Miami, the Marlins basically say, hey, just take his money off our hands. We'll give you a little bit of cash. We'll, we'll take back Sarlin Castro's contract with a couple of minor, minor prospects. Brian Cashman just says, you know what? This is too good to resist. I'm going to take him. And you wonder, was that move really necessary for this baseball team? Because they had right-handed power in abundance. And John Carlos Stanton taking him on, yes, he makes the team better in theory. But he's always getting hurt. He has yet to show the Yankees that he can, quote, earn his pinstripes. Both Schneider had pointed out on the podcast last week. We have this whole strange saga with the quad injury in this series where he sits out two, three games two, three, and four, asks in the lineup for game five, doesn't do much, but they win. Then they fly out to Houston for game six the next day, and they sit him out because Aaron Boone said they didn't want to push his quad. What? You want to push it with the quad? If he gets hurt, who cares? You take him off the roster, and he has the entire offseason to recover. Your goal is to win the baseball game. And Edwin Encarnacion not hit a lick in this series. The fact that you did not put Stanton in the lineup there because you didn't want to push it with his quad, give me a break. That's weak sauce. Come on. He probably gave you a better chance to win that game. He didn't take it. That tells you, I think, that they don't have much faith in Giancarlo. And this is a problem for them because he cost them a lot of money and he's injury prone. He played barely anything this year. Missed some time last year. This is a case of a guy where the fit's not right, and they're stuck with him. He has no trade. After next season, he can opt into the rest of his contract. It means you're paying him without the Marlins help pretty much after that. And his money may be holding up them doing other things because they have a lot of changes to consider in the offseason. Didi Gregorius is a free agent. Are you re-signing him? Or are you going with Glaber at shortstop, putting DJ LeMayu at second, and putting Andujar back at third, or Gio Urshela there, or something of that equation? Who is your first base next year? Luke Voigt had a great start, but he was miserable down the stretch. He was losing at bats to Mike Ford. Is he your first baseman? Is Greg Bird somewhere in there? Are you getting someone else? And the million-dollar question, who is coming in to help this rotation? Because by my count, you have two reliable starters in Masahiro Tanaka and James Paxton. Domingo Herman's had one very good year and he's coming off suspension now. So we will see what he will do in his second full year in the rotation. Luis Alvarino barely pitched this season. You have to 
wonder, can we count on him to be a regular presence rotation at the top of it? I think it would be much better for the Yankees if they went out and got a big-time starter. And I know what everyone in Yankee land is screaming. We're going to sign Garrett Cole. He'll solve our problems. Before you say throw the, the, the blank checkbook at Cole, two things to consider with him. Number one, he is a West Coast guy. He has West Coast preferences, so don't be surprised if a team like the Angels or the Dodgers are in there for him because I could see all things being equal that he would say, you know what, I prefer pitching out West. And I prefer pitching closer to home. Remember, the Yankees took him as a in his first time in the minor, minor league draft, and he did not sign with them to go to college at UCLA. It'll be interesting to see if that situation arises. And you say, okay, well, we don't get Cole. We could get Steven Strasburg after he opts out. We could go for Zach Wheeler. A couple of different options there. But remember this. Remember last offseason when the, everyone thought Patrick Corwin was destined to be a Yankee. And he had basically, you know, this whole thing about how his brother wanted him to be a Yankee. He talked about being a Yankee at somebody's wedding. But at the end of the day, he goes to Washington for six years because Brian Cashin did not want to give him that extra year. Do you think if he didn't want to give Patrick Corbin six years, $140 million, do you think he's going to go $200 million to Garrett Cole? I don't know. And if that's the case, you have to wonder, does taking on Stanton's contract prohibit them from doing certain things? Because now this is not the old swashbuckling George Steinberg Yankees who say, I don't care about the money. I want the best players here. These Yankees have shown they are willing to operate within a budget and they are treating the luxury tax as some kind of salary cap because they resisted the urge to go over it last year when there were guys out there could have helped them like Manny Machado or Bryce Harper. They resisted that urge because they didn't really say why they resisted that urge. They sort of had this idea of, we have a value on our players. If they get more of that value good for them. We're not paying them for it. Is this a case where they have thrown so much money at Giancarlo and with the luxury tax being an issue, that's a lot of wasted money when you have very similar players and he doesn't really fit positionally with his team. And you're stuck with him. Considering what you have going on here, I would be shocked if there's not a ton of changes. I wouldn't be shocked if they bring back DD, sign somebody like Wheeler and say, you know what, we're calling it a day. We have enough stuff here. I think that they do need to consider altering this lineup in some way, try and get it more contact-friendly, a little less rely on the home run. It's great you have guys like Judge and Glaber and LeMahieu on the roster, but LeMahieu is the guy you need more of. He's a guy who's showing he can hit everywhere. He's not relying on the home run. He can hit tough pitching. That's something I think they should focus more on, but until they do, a lot of questions in Yankee land. Things should shape up a bit going forward with that, but let's get to the World Series for a second. And I want to point out, back on the podcast in March, when the season was just beginning, I did call this World Series. Here is my prediction from our baseball regular season preview podcast back at the end of March. Yeah, I have the Nationals breaking through as well. I thought the Bryce Jenks was real, so (laughs) I think they could get there, but they are going to lose to the Houston Astros. I think the Astro pitching... I think that's very underrated right now. The Yankees, I think, still have questions on that starting pitching staff. That's a huge problem in the playoffs. Yep. Other words. Nailed it. I did nail it. And I think this series will be a lot of fun with the Astros and the Nationals because 
great pitching matchups throughout. You got on one side, you have Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, Patrick Corbin, Anibal Sanchez, Astro side. Obviously, you got Justin Verlander, Garrett Cole lined up for game one. You have Zach Greinke in there. It's going to be a very fun series with these pitching matchups. Deep lines on both sides. The question of the series, I think, is this. Does Washington get affected by the layoff? Because remember, while the Astros needed until Saturday to beat the Yankees and get into the World Series, the Nationals had the NLCS wrapped up on Tuesday night. They swept the St. Louis Cardinals, got to the World Series. They'll go a week without playing a baseball game. You wonder with them, with the layoff, is it a big deal? Because remember, remember the 2015 Mets, who this team has been compared to favorably on several occasions. This team found a way to sweep the Cubs in the NLCS. The Royals got pushed by the Blue Jays to game six, and they ended up winning that game. The Mets were struggling out of the gate in that World Series. They lost the first two games in Kansas City, although to be fair, they did have a shot at game one before Jerry made decided stupidly to quick pitch Alex Gordon, but that's besides the point. They lose the first two games. Game three, they win at home, and they lose game four and game five, and they're out. And you wonder, is the same fake of the fall of the Nationals? Curtis Granderson on WFAN recently, he was a member of the 2015 team, he acknowledged that when that series started, he picked up his bat. He's like, this doesn't feel like my bat. I don't feel like I sh- should be hitting with this. That's a long time for hitters to go without playing games. If there's a little rust there, edge Astros. If they fall behind the Astros... That's a huge problem because the Astros really have one game where they have a problem with the pitching, which is going to be game four, when they have to figure out whether they're throwing Brad Peacock or Quiddy or Wade Miley or some kitchen sink bullpen kind of deal. If the Nationals are behind this series because they're off to a slow start, huge edge to Houston here. Huge. We'll keep an eye on the World Series as it goes. But up next, we're going to talk some Knicks with Rob Wolkenbrod right after this. Dramatic, emphatic ending here for the Knicks. And watch the razzle-dazzle off the glass. All right, you guys heard one of the few highlights in the Knicks last year. Mitchell Robinson dunking an alley-oop from Dennis Smith Jr. Knicks have a lot of changes this year as the NBA season kicks off this week. Joining me today to break them down is the... One of the uh, big contributors to Daily Knicks over a fan site, Rob Wolkenbrod, is on the podcast. Rob, welcome. How are you? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. Ready to talk some Knicks basketball. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I am a Knicks fan as well, so not a lot to look forward to last year. And I will say, I was disappointed when Durant and Kyrie turned them down for Brooklyn. So how do you think the Knicks did going to plan B? Um... I was a little skeptical when they went for the plan B at first, just because they had mentioned all along, this is going to be our big off season. Durant's going to come here. Maybe Kyrie's going to come here. Maybe. And you always had a feeling that someone was going to lose out on these big name free agents. Of course it was the Knicks, but their plan, and they walked into their plan B. I don't think they had, they, I think they did the best they could. They dispersed their money um, for players that could fill out the roster. Um, I think these are players that are pretty much all upgrades over last year's, uh, I guess you want to say wild disappointment or just colossal failure. Um, but I'm, 
I was okay with I'm okay with some of it. I, I'm glad they didn't put too much money into um, long term contracts and they kept short term. They kept financial fle- flexibility, which which I think was important over the next one two one to two years. And most importantly, I think it will just make them a little more competitive on the court. Yeah, a little more competitive would be good. And they did a lot of new guys in here. So which of the new guys intrigues you the most? Who intrigues me most? I would probably say Marcus Morris. I, I always liked Morris when he was with the Celtics for the past few years. I thought he was a fine contributor for the playoff team. Obviously, the Knicks probably aren't aren't going to go too too far, but I think he's a good veteran presence that provides enough impact offensively and most importantly defensively, where they've they've lacked for quite a few years now. So hopefully, he can at least improve it and make it respectable for them on that end. Yeah, and I think it says a lot, for at least for the culture aspect, the fact that he, tur- that he turned down a deal from the Spurs. He had an agreement with them to come here. I think that's a definitely a positive. Right, yeah, yeah. That that whole situation, that was one of the most in- interesting things I saw this offseason, too. But he, he wanted to come to New York, and I was mildly surprised about that, um, especially over San Antonio. But it was apparently for family logistics and whatnot, so... Uh, for however long he's here, whether it's this year or beyond, uh, yeah, we'll we'll see how it goes. Yeah, the biggest name to come in though was R.J. Barrett, the third pick in the draft. So he's he's got some ability, got a lot of ability, got a lot of potential here. So what do you think we should expect out of R.J. in his rookie year? Um, I'm let's, I know Knicks fans are probably going to be expecting the world right away. He's number three overall pick, understandably, but. He's probably going to take some time. Um, I liked what he did in the preseason. He's able to finish around the rim well. Um, he can create with the basketball. Uh, the only thing is his defense is a work in progress. His shot's a work in progress. So I hope Knicks fans are willing to be patient with him, kind of kind of like in the way they were with Kevin Knox last year. Um, but I think Barrett has uh, all-star potential in him within the next, I'd say, three to five years. Uh, once he Once his game comes around, um, once he gets comfortable, which he already, he already looks comfortable, um, yeah, I, th- I think he's got a bright future, and I think he could be one of the faces of Knicks basketball for the next decade. And they definitely need that because they've been trying to find that next superstar for a long time, and it'd be good if he could be that guy. Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah, because they're, I mean, as everyone's seen, they're, they're striking out in free agency right now, and there's no big-name players hitting the open market until – uh, 2021. So if they can find someone now through the draft and help build and develop, and maybe maybe one of those players can become that guy, and maybe Barrett can become that second, third, who knows, maybe even first guy sometime down the line. That would be that would definitely be nice for them. Yeah, they haven't done a ton to the draft. One thing I give them credit for was Mitchell Robinson was the best thing to happen to them last year, and he was a great uh, addition as a rim protector and had a very good year as a second round pick, but. Knicks did add a ton of bigs in free agency, so how do you think that's going to impact his development this year? Um, bigs, I was, I was a little, you know, that's part of it. I was a little skeptical of it too because um, Robinson, he, I think he, he needs more time than last year, and, and Fisdale was slowly giving him um, that opportunity. But, um, but, but there was already some concern I saw from him playing with uh, foul trouble, and now he's already. He already sprained his ankle again. I think it's his second or third ankle sprain in a year. I think that's a little bit of a concern. So I'm so I'm, I'm actually I'm not so against the depth um, that they brought in anymore with Gibson and uh, Portis and Randall. I actually think that might help, especially if Robinson's just not ready fiscally for a full for a major role. 
So maybe this will be another year where he takes it slow. He's still 21 years old. Um, he can finally build, he can build up some strength. Um, he can get his game a little under control because he can't be fouling himself out um, within 10 to 15 minutes of play. So maybe maybe if he takes a few steps forward, but not not too far, I, I, I guess that makes sense. And hopefully by, I'd say, his third year, he's ready for a a pretty major role with this team. Yeah, I would say so, too. Another guy who last year had a lot of a role, but he might not have his big role this year, is Kevin Knox, who struggled for most of his rookie year. So what do you think we're going to get out of Kevin Knox in year two? Because now he's got that Ernie's playing time with all the guys they brought in. Yeah, he's someone who's probably going to, uh, in my opinion, fall to the, the playing time crunch a little bit there. He's still going to get his minutes. Um, I can't see him getting what he got last year, uh, which I think was around 25 to 28. Um, probably something around 20 to 22, I would think. He's going to definitely lose time to Marcus Morris. Um, Fizdale's probably going to play around with some rotations. And I actually think it's it's good for Knox um, because he he just seemed like he was in over his head with the role he had last year. And he just needs a lot of time um, developing a uh, consistent jump shot, and most importantly, just, just becoming a respectable defensive player because he's got a lot of work to do there, and hopefully he can learn from these veterans that came in. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great for him. Another young player who I think might get a bigger role, we thought, was Frank Nilakina, considering the Knicks picked his option up, and he had a good summer overseas international play. So it, what do you think the role is on this team for Frank? Uh well, first of all, I, yeah, I'm glad that I'm actually very happy they picked up this uh, option because this team is in need of uh, perimeter defenders, and I've always liked liking him to someone like a, a Tony Allen almost. He can play that kind of role for them because um, I don't think he's ever going to become this this dynamic ball handler or a dynamic shooter. His specialty is defending the perimeter, and I think if the Knicks utilize him in that role and just someone at least just off the bench, give him 20, 25 minutes per game. Um, maybe yeah, somewhere in that ballpark. I think that's a good enough role for him because I just can't see him starting as the a main a main ball handler. I just don't think he's ever going to come around to that guy. Perhaps I'll be wrong, but I don't see that right now. So I'm glad the Knicks are keeping him around, um, and hopefully he can become a, just. Hopefully they just put enough confidence in him. I think it's the most part just put confidence in him to become a quality player. Yeah, I noticed in the, late in the preseason they were experimenting with him sort of being the off-ball point guard where he was sort of not being ball-dominant with lines like Barrett and Randall and guys like that. I think that might be a good fit for him. I uh, 100% agree, yeah. I, I, I don't think he's he's ready or maybe he'll ever be ready to handle the ball full-time. I don't, I don't think he's athletic enough fully to penetrate the paint. Uh, I, th- I would think he just... Just not that kind of guy. I I think he yeah, he can play off the ball no problem, but um, yeah yeah. So so I think yeah, playing off of Barrett, and I think that would probably be pretty ideal for him. That would be ideal. In terms of the other two point guards of the team, who do you think is gonna have more of an impact? Dennis Smith Jr. in his second year here, Elfrey Payton, who the Scott Perry drafted and made sure he brought in this year. Oof, well, based on the preseason, oh man, it's gonna it's gonna be kind of tough to figure out to figure out that right now because nobody stood out, and I believe. In the latest report, I think it, was, it might have been. I think it was from Stefan Bondi of the Daily News. He he actually said neither of those guys are might yeah neither of those guys might even be in the starting lineup uh, for Wednesday night. So so who knows what kind of impact they're going to make immediately? 
Um, but over time, I have a feeling it's actually going to be Alfred Payton getting more of the role over Smith, just because Fizz, I kind of liken it to how Fizdale viewed the point guard situation last yeah. year. He savored Emmanuel Moutier over time because he loved the way how he, he pushed the he pushed the ball and how he just passed it out. He was and he kept saying Moutier is my best passer over Neil Keenan. I have a feeling something like that could happen if Fizdale isn't willing to put Barrett as a full time point guard. So maybe over time, Peyton could just be that guy who just, he's Fisdale's next guy. He he's passes the ball well. Uh, he, get, he feeds his teammates. And it leads to Smith coming off the bench in kind of like a sixth or a seventh man-like role. Yeah, that would be interesting to see what that all shakes out. And it's going to be a big juggling act for David Fisdale, who is going to have well, more expectations his second year in the job. Do you like Fisdale as the next coach? Um. I kind of use the first year as like a trial year. Like I can't, I can't really, um, I couldn't really fully assess him too much just because the team was just, they weren't really playing for anything. Uh, so I think this year is really going to come into, yeah, it's really, excuse me, this year is really going to come into a, yeah, it's going to be a bigger year for him. Um, really going to see what kind of, how his players react to the offense, defensive um, schemes he puts in. Uh, so far, what I'm seeing a lot of is isolation ball from his players. I don't know if that's just a preseason thing or not. Um, I saw it a little bit last season too. The ball movement just lacks with it. I and he keeps he preaches for ball movement, and I don't see it from his offenses. So I think maybe with more talented players in, maybe it'll make him look better this time around. But I'm a little I'm a little skeptical right now. I, I'm not I'm not fully out the door, but I'm not fully invested in him as the long-term coach, but I'm willing to give him a chance this season, maybe even next season. So it'll just be a process. Yeah, it's going to be a process for sure. And obviously they should not be as bad as they were last year. They, they should win more than 17 games. So what do you think the realistic number is that you think the Knicks are going to end up winning this year? Uh, yeah, I definitely think they'll be above 17. I will I'll, – I'll say probably roughly 25 to 30 wins. Uh, they'll be a more competitive team. They'll find a few more games. That I don't think they're going to go on another – um, 18 game losing streak, which was just horrific. Um, so I think they'll they'll find their way into yeah a few more games here and there. And yeah, I, I think I think they'll yeah they're not going to make the playoffs with 25 to 30 wins, but they'll be a little more respectable and hopefully it can be a start to rebuilding. Um, yeah, their uh, landscape there. Yeah, I think that's a, vice, a must for them because we saw last year that these big freeze, they don't want to go a 17-win team. They want to go somewhere they can just go and be ready to win right now like what happened with Brooklyn. So if the Knicks can start building towards that like point where they're just on the break of the playoffs the time the next big free agents come around, that would be a big help. Right, yeah, and even I think Kevin Durant just came out uh, recently, recently within the, one, the past one to two days on Serge Ibaka's podcast and said compared to the Knicks and the Nets, he he thought the Nets were just further along as a as a competitive as a competitive team right now, and obviously the, the Knicks just weren't in that position last year. So in a way, you, yeah, you just hopefully for them they take a step forward and they and they shine brighter and they remove any of that negative spotlight they've had for however long now. Well, definitely be an interesting season, Rob Wolkenbrod. Thank you for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, do you want to let people know how I on social media some of the stuff you're up to for fansided? Sure, yeah, yeah. You can follow me along on Twitter at Real Rob Wilkin. Um, I, I do uh, coverage for Knicks almost every day on DailyKnicks.com. Um, I also have my uh, podcast that's in its uh, fifth or sixth episode 
called the Transaction Lock Podcast. It covers um, current NBA basketball and it kind of takes a deeper dive into the historical aspects um, via trades and old signings. And it's a little fun, little different thing I do. So, yeah, it's been fun. All right. Check it out, uh, Rob. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me. All right, there you have it, folks. That was Rob Wolkenbrod from Daily Knicks with a big Knicks preview as the season kicks off this week. Up next, show me the money, NFL picks with Ian Sachs right after this. Show me the money. All right, show me the money. NFL picks for week number eight on the Just End the Suffering podcast. And the first time this year, I have an in-studio guest to do picks. I have uh, Ian Sachs here with me, who we last heard from talking about B-Meds baseball and Rumble Pony Mania. Ian, how are you? Mike, I'm so happy to be here. It was a pleasure joining you via telephone the last time. And now I'm in studio, get to come back to Murphy and see all the great stuff that's going on here and... I'm just happy to be back and ready to talk some NFL football. Yeah, a little inside podcasting here. Ian and I are actually going to be on the call for Iona Men's Soccer later today. Ian is be our sideline reporter. I'm going to be the analyst with our good friend Austin Salato doing play-by-play. So if you – this will not be out by then, but if you want to go back in the archives of ESPN+, Plus, watch Iona Niagara. The three of us will be calling the game. And, Mike, it's your ESPN debut. So some exciting news for you. How do you feel about it? I'm excited about it. I'm just pumped to get out there, get my first shot at play. I play. I have six pages of notes on this on this soccer game. I'm ready to go. And you know what? That's probably not enough. And yet, you're probably not going to use that much of it because that's the way prepping for a game goes. It's all looking it up, and then once the game starts, you throw it all out the window. But you know that it's there. Yeah, because if you need it, you have it. That's right. basically the theory. Exactly, exactly. And the most important thing is being able to recall where you had it, where you saw it, and boom, right in the moment, check it out, throw that stat, that story out there, and that's the magic and the key to a good broadcast. Absolutely, and that's a little inside podcasting, inside sports broadcasting for those of you who want to be into it. But let's talk some football today. So you have not done the picks us before. What kind of fan are you? I am a New England Patriots fan, a lifelong resident of Westchester County, just outside of New York City, and yet I am a New England Patriot fan. How did that happen? Well, it's twofold. Uh, one, my first ever football memory is watching the Tuck Rule game, AFC championship or um, AFC divisional round between the Patriots and the Oakland Raiders way back at the beginning of the Patriot dynasty, and I still remember I was in my parents' bedroom, lying on their bed, watching that game, and just starting to understand football and the way that the way that it's played and knowing that it was a, a controversial call, and I kind of just grew to like the Patriots. And then secondly, uh, while, I was, uh, while I was growing up, my grandparents lived in Connecticut, so going up there on weekends and being able to, to watch the Patriots because you really don't get to see that many Patriot games it, in the New York market, you get to see when they play the Jets twice a year. You get to see when they're on primetime. But outside of that, you really don't get to watch that many Patriot games. So just being able to have access to those games and watching them and then falling in love with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. And as I grew older, having a deeper appreciation for their greatness and the continued success of their team has only increased my liking for the team. 
Yeah, and you hopped on right as the bandwagon was starting to fill up, right? Right at 01, right in the beginning of the whole run there. So you were not one of the, like, 2004 people like, oh, they were winning. I'm going to jump on that. You were there even before they started to win. Right, right. Yeah. I uh, I still remember that, that they were the little engine that could against the greatest show on turf. And, and I said, you know what? It, they, I, I like this team, and I like the way that they came out when they were introduced in, in that Super Bowl against the Rams that – they didn't have each player be called out in the starting lineup. They came out as the New England Patriots, one united front. And that really spoke volumes to me. Even as a six- or seven-year-old watching that game, I was like, wow, that, that that's pretty cool. It was pretty cool. And we'll talk about this Monday night game. I will spare you the rant on the Jets because that's going in my next podcast. I'm still upset about that Monday night effort they put out there. But 33 nothing, Patriots completely dominate that game on the defensive side of the football there. And that's been a trend since the Super Bowl last year. The defense sort of taken over as the lead for this team. So how do you think about the fact this transformation is now it's not just we need Tom Brady to make every play and win the game. Now it's the defense just shutting everyone down. Well, it's been – it's really coming full circle for this yeah. Patriots dynasty. If you look at the that first three and four years for the Patriots, it was really the defense that was the catalyst for – that dynasty and then the offense kind of just followed suit and Tom Brady grew and grew and grew and then towards the end of that three in four years that was when you really saw Brady elevate himself as one of the best in the game but it was that defense behind be behind Teddy Bruschi at linebacker and then they had Vince Wolfork come in for the final year of that championship run and all the likes of Ty Law at cornerback and so many star-studded players on defense, then a lot of them shifted away after the 16-0 and season. Brewski retired. They brought in Junior Seau. He was only there for a couple of seasons. And then you, then you started to see the Patriots rely a lot more on Brady. That was when they brought in Welker. That was when they brought in uh, Hernandez. Randy at, Moss. Randy Moss at, at uh, Randy Moss, a wide receiver. Uh, Hernandez at tight end, Gronk at tight end. And that's when you started to see the high-powered offense, and the defense really struggled. The year that they lost to the Giants in the Super Bowl, the, the second time they lost to the Giants in the Super Bowl, their defense was ranked 31st in the NFL. And now they've come full circle, and the defense is rolling, and you're really starting to see the defensive genius of Bill Belichick now that he is, quote-unquote, the defensive coordinator. Yeah, he's been taking over defense. They've been phenomenal, and they do have issues on the offensive end because obviously Gronk retired, Josh Gordon's been banged up. They have a lot of injuries. They made a trade yesterday, recording on Wednesday. They acquired Mohamed Sanu from the Falcons, so I feel like he's going to fit right into that offense, like a good route run. I feel like he's exactly what the Patriots want in a receiver. Well, everyone's talking about the Patriots need more weapons on offense. The Patriots need more weapons. And then it seems like every single week they're bringing in some new star to go on offense. They brought in Josh, or they got Josh Gordon back in the offseason. Then they bring in Antonio Brown, that circus of a fiasco for the one game. And it's good that they got rid of him because they don't need that headache. But then you look at Sanu and the the ability that he brings on the outside for Brady, another safety blanket. And you can't forget, you have the Super Bowl MVP in Julian Edelman. Yeah, there's a lot of talent there, and they're 7-0. They're running rush out over the league. This week, they get the overhyped Cleveland Browns coming into uh, Foxborough this week. So I feel like it's going to be a very good recipe for 8-0 this week against the Browns, who just can't get out of their own way half the time. The Browns have a lot of talent, but it seems like they're doomed 
to fail before they even kick the football off. There's going to be some headline, some distraction that's going to cost them during the game. And that's the complete opposite of the Patriots. Even if there is a distraction, even if there is a headline, Belichick gets this team ready, gets this team focused, and where when they show up to the field on Sunday, all they care about is the task at hand, and that's beating the opponent in front of them. And it seems like this defense, every single week, they're setting another type of record, another stat that says the Patriot, this year's Patriots team is the first team to do this since 1945, 1920, 19-whatever. And it they just continue to impress and continue to step it up no matter who the opponent is in front of them. And that's the making of a great team. And the Patriots have really distanced themselves as the premier team in the AFC this season. You look at the Kansas City Chiefs, they've already lost two games. You look at the Buffalo Bills, when the Patriots played them earlier this season, that game wasn't even a close contest. So you really have to feel good if you're a Patriots fan thinking, you know what, I think we really could go undefeated this season. Yeah, they definitely could. They're playing well enough to do that. And go my soapbox second about the Browns. I don't know when we anointed Baker Mayfield's next greatest thing since sliced bread, but the dude has not done anything this year. He's incredibly talented. Well, he did put up a lot of points on the Jets. Yeah, well, the Jets were not doing much in that game. And even if you look at that game, he didn't do a ton. It really was Odell Beckham taking one slant to the house. The Jets had him fuddle most of that game. That's true, but if you look at last year, at this point, Baker hadn't really done much. It was the whole second half of the season. So maybe he just needs to get right, get acclimated to the new offensive coordinator. Of course, Freddie Kitchens being the head coach now. So it's ultimately his show and and what he says. And he was Baker's coach last year and led them to all that magic winning seven games. But even if you look at it there, right on line for about five wins so far this season, which would be relatively close to where they were last year. Yeah, not what the Browns wanted here, but we'll get to the picks now. Our good friend Will Schneiderhan was here last week doing the picks for the Challenger team, and he went 3-0 and last week. He, uh-oh, uh-oh, high standard for me to live up to now. Yeah, yeah, he had the best week of the year for the Challengers. He had the Chiefs laying 3.5 in Denver against the Broncos. They blew them out even when Patrick Mahomes went out of the game. He had the Saints plus 3.5 against the Bears. The Saints ran the Bears off the field. And he had the Cowboys laying 3 on Sunday Night Football. He, they blew the Eagles out of the building. I mean, that game wasn't even close. I, I am so shocked. I'm not that surprised that Dallas won that game, but I'm surprised that the way that the way that they did win that game. I had it on in the in the first quarter. I saw okay, Dallas, you know, taking an early lead. That's fine. Then I had it off for a little bit. Then I turn it back on and it's 27-7. I said, wait, where did this ha- where did this come from? Yeah, very schizophrenic Cowboys team last couple of weeks. So yeah, I, th- yeah th- they they lose to the Jets the week before and then they. Come back on Sunday Night Football and and blow the doors off of their arch rival, the Philadelphia Eagles, and cement themselves atop the NFC East. But I really think that the Eagles are set for a bounce back week this week. Yeah, the, that's gonna be an interesting game this week when they go to Buffalo. I in the hand went. I had my worst week of the year. I went one and two last week. I did the one I got right. I had the Jaguars laying three and a half at Cincinnati against the Bengals. I bet on them just running the football at will, and they did. I had the Bills. I took all 17 of those points against the Dolphins. The Dolphins covered that once I lost. And then, stupid me, I took the Jets and the 10 points on Monday night. That was a disaster. <laughs> well, you're showing your Jets fandom. I, I bought in after the Dallas game. I thought, we're going to compete in this game. And then, nope. First drive, once they went down, like, 
I'm not. This is not happening for me today. Well, it, mm-hmm. it seems that when the Jets and the Patriots play every year, one game is a blowout, and one game is really close. And usually, the, it's the MetLife game is close. Right. Yeah. A, a, exactly. Yeah. And the Jets have performed well against New England, despite their differences in of in success the last couple of years. The Jets always show up for the New England game, and they just they just completely laid an egg and saw some ghosts on Monday night. Uh, don't remind me about the ghosts. I'll save that one for the next one as well. But to reset for the year, the challengers are eleven and ten. I am fifteen and six. I have been red hot heading in, into last week. I cool off, so I'm gonna try and get back on track. But since you are the guest, Ian, you can go first. And where are you gonna go with pick number one? Well, I hinted at it earlier, and I said that the Philadelphia Eagles visiting the Buffalo Bills. I like for the Eagles to have a bounce back game. This week, and I think that they are going to win outright in Buffalo. I see that as well, because the Buffalo, for as good as they've been this year, they haven't really beaten anybody of note yet. Because you look at their schedule, the one tough game they played was New England. Yes, they were in that game the whole way, but they lost. And the Eagles, this is desperation time here. They're 3-4. and four. They can't go at 3-5. and five. The NFC is loaded. You cannot be that bad. I think desperation comes out. They circle the wagons. They beat the Bills. I like that pick. Where are you going with your next one? I am going with the Jacksonville Jaguars staying hot and picking up the win this year. Give me them and the points. Yeah, what's the number against the Jets this week? They are minus four. Yeah. And I think that they are going to throw the Jets out of the water and blow the doors off. That would not surprise me because the Jets have not looked very good most of this year. The Dallas game aside, they've been pretty bad. And the offensive line is a problem. It's still, as we saw Monday against the Patriots, they did zero blitzing to death the whole game. And... Jack's still a fearsome pass rush, so that terrifies me as a Jet fan. I could worry for Sam Darnold's safety back there. And then for my third pick, I'm going with the Seahawks giving six and a half. Uh, getting. Uh, getting six and a half, that's right. Yeah. Getting six and a half, I'm taking the Seahawks. Yeah, in Atlanta against the Falcons. The Falcons have not looked good this season, and I, I look for the Seahawks to have a bounce back win after losing last week, really surprisingly, to the Ravens at home. Yeah, that was a surprising game they had, and Atlanta's just been miserable the entire year. Figure Dan Quinn's a dead coach walking right now. And it's so surprising that this Falcons team, just two years removed from going to the Super Bowl, and it looked like Matt Ryan was the next star quarterback and going to cement himself among the top four or five in the league. And they have just, the wheels have fallen off very quickly there in Atlanta. Yes, they did back themselves into the playoffs last year, but they are trending absolutely in the wrong direction they are trending the wrong direction and they never got over 28-3 that's clear that's pretty clear to me i'm going to my picks now pick number one i'm taking your team i'm taking the new england patriots laying 10 and a half at home against those browns and this is more of an anti-brown pick than anything just because what have the browns shown us this year that warrants them being that close of a favor to the patriots the patriots have dominated both sides of the football all year their defense they give baker huge problems uh, in terms of that game plan and I've seen nothing from the Browns that says they're going to go into Foxborough and give you a game. So give me the pass and the 10.5 points, pick number one. That home field advantage for New England just continues to get better and better and better. At most, they'll lose one game at home in a season. And you know what? I don't even think they're trending in that direction. I think they're going to go undefeated. I love that pick. Yeah, that's a great pick for me, pick number one. Pick number two, I'm picking against the other New York team. I'm taking the Detroit Lions, getting slaying seven points at home against the Giants. The Giants last week against the Cardinals looked pathetic for most of that game. Chase Edmonds might still be running through the uh, MetLife Stadium parking lot right now, trying to find hope and holes for touchdowns right there. It's just 
They could not stop anybody. The Lions are going to pick them apart through the year. Matthew Starr threw four touchdowns last week to Marvin Jones. He and Kenny Galladay are going to find open room all day because the Giants secondary. And Daniel Jones has regressed every week. And you know from Matt Patricia's experience with the Patriots, very good defensive game player. He'll throw more wrinkles to Jones he hasn't seen before. So I think it'll get ugly in Detroit. Give me the Lions laying the seven at home, pick number two. Well, the play that, that still flashes in my memory from that Giants-Cardinals game is the blocked punt that that the the Giants that oh yeah that's right that the Giants you thought it was a momentum swing there right but but either way it it was a momentum swing and the Giants needed to get that play in order to to even stay close in that and yeah special teams is the added component and can turn the tide of a game but you look offensively for the Giants they needed to rely on that touchdown to even stay within a little bit of of Arizona and keep the game close, I think that the Giants offense cannot keep up with Detroit. They will not. That's pick number two for me. Pick number three. This one, I look at the number. I'm like, this makes no sense. I'm taking the Colts laying six and a half at home against Denver. This is another one. I look at this. I'm like, the Broncos are only down six and a half points in the spread here. We Did you watch the game against Kansas City, Vegas? Did you see how bad they looked against the Chiefs? And the Colts have a much better defense. They have a capable running game with Marlon Mack and company. Jacoby Brissett's a very underrated quarterback, and he's made a lot of good plays when they beat the Texans up last week at home. And six and a half points is a very small number for a Denver Broncos team. It's looked very bad most of the year. So give me the Colts, line six and a half, pick number three. I'm actually going to disagree with you on that one. I think that the Colts are due for a letdown game after a couple weeks ago beating the Chiefs on Sunday Night Football and then coming in with a great game last week. I think that this team is playing way over their heads right now. And I think that Denver is one of those sneaky teams. Just think about what they did to the Chargers. I know the Chargers are not good this year, but think about the way that they blew them out a couple of weeks ago. I think that Denver is a team that can pull off the upset here. Interesting. We'll see how that goes. So to reset the picks here, Ian has gone with the Eagles plus one and a half in Buffalo against the Bills. The Jags laying four at home against the miserable New York Jets. And the Seahawks laying six and a half on the road against Atlanta, probably without Matt Ryan in that game. I have gone with the Patriots laying ten and a half at home against the hapless Cleveland Browns. The Lions laying seven at home against the New York football Giants. And the Colts laying six and a half at home against the Denver Broncos. And those are your picks for week number eight on Shelby the Money. Next week, I actually have a Colts fan doing picks on the podcast this week. Uh, my golf guy, Dan Martini, who is works the PGA Tour. He's a big Colt fan. He's coming back to do picks next week. Should be a good one. So, so you're going all around the AFC. You're a Jets fan. Brought in a Patriots fan this week. You have a Colts fan next week. Where are you going to go after that? That's to be determined. Probably a Giant fan because we have Jets-Giants a couple of weeks. That's where oh, I'm that's probably right. going. That's right. Should be a good showdown. It should be a good showdown. Hopefully the Jets show up in that game because I've enjoyed my four years of bragging rights on the last time they played the Giants. That's right. I, I still remember that game. The Jets with an incredible comeback. And two two of my best friends are Jets fans. And I remember the two of them celebrating and, and one of them even proclaiming, we're going to the Super Bowl this year. Didn't quite work out for the Jets that season. No, but, Fitz, but, Fitz, that was the height of Fitz magic. But, but still a, a, an exciting win. And, well, you know what? It, it's definitely a winnable game for the Jets. And you look at the remaining home schedule for the Jets just to – to go on the Jets for a little bit, they have the Giants. That's a winnable game. They have 
Pittsburgh without Big Ben, that's a winnable game. You have the Dolphins, that's another winnable game. So the Jets could put together a couple of home wins down the stretch. Yeah, that's true. I also feel like a lot of these teams look at the schedule like the Redskins saying, oh, the Jets are coming and we can beat them. That's a winnable game. The Giants saying the Jets is a winnable game. At this point, I don't think the Jets have earned the benefit of the doubt for anybody. I think that the Jets actually have. I think, yes, Sam Darnold in his uh, return has not been the greatest, but I think once he gets a couple of weeks under his belt, once he gets back into a rhythm, I think that the Jets can put together a couple wins. I do, too. I just don't trust the coach. I've been an anti-Adam Gates since he was hired, and I just hope that like he shows something more than what he has because this the early returns have not been good with him. I think both Gates and Shermer have, haven't have lived up to the hype and the expectations, and, and I think that with their young quarterbacks, you really expected a lot. You really wanted to see a lot from them, and they haven't lived up to it. But I think that at some point, that the pure talent of Daniel Jones and the pure talent of of Sam Darnold are going to rise above the coaching and help them pick up a couple wins. For sure. I hope you're right. Ian, thanks for all the time today. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, do you want to let everybody know how to follow you on social media and some of the stuff you're up to? Sure. It's uh, Facebook. Um, you know, just follow me uh, how, however you want it. It's my how name. About, how about Twitter? It's my name, Ian Sachs. And then uh, both Twitter and Instagram is at Ian R. Sachs. That's I-A-N-R-S-A-C-K-S. So it's first name, middle initial, and last name. And look forward to all the follows. Reach out to me and look forward to continuing the conversation on social media. Absolutely. And if you want to keep an eye on those Iona soccer games and volleyball games and basketball games, Ian will be involved in plenty of those. Oh, yeah. I am looking forward to it. The The gym just opened a week ago, and it looks, looks um, so incredible in there for volleyball. I can't even wait for basketball to get underway in a couple weeks. And, of course, soccer, the men's soccer team, has been red hot as of late. We look forward to watching them uh, progress down the final weeks of the season and into the MAG tournament. And it's an exciting time for Iona sports. Yeah, and just an insider note for Iona sports fans. I know you, those of you who are not Iona people probably get tuned out for this, but were you aware this morning that uh, Isaiah, like uh, Jelly got the waiver for Iona for basketball? He got cleared to play. He did, and it is a, another great piece of news that E.J. Crawford named unanimous first team to all-max selection for the preseason. So another bright spot for Iona men's basketball, and just can't wait for them to hit the court. It, it, we're only about two weeks away from the start of the season. I, I personally cannot wait. I, I have a, cl- a countdown going. Yeah, I can't wait to talk college basketball on this podcast going forward. It's going to be great. But up next, we're going to this week's two-minute drill. We're offering my Phillips film review on the latest 30 for 30 film, Chuck and Tito, right after this. All right, time for another Phil's film review on this week's edition of the Two Minute Drill. I'm taking a look back at the latest edition of the 30 for 30 film franchise, Chuck and Tito. It tells the story of the rise of the UFC through two of its biggest early stars, Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell, the titular Chuck and Tito of 
the th- of the film. And I will admit, I'm not a huge UFC guy. I'm more of a UFC casual. I have a lot of friends who, back in the day, were big UFC fans. And I must say, this this film was pretty interesting. I will give it that. We started off, obviously, with a little bit of background into the UFC, for those who are unfamiliar. And back in the early days, the UFC was brutal. I mean... The whole idea of the original UFC one, which took place and only took place in Denver, because very few states even sanctioned this kind of event. The idea of the original UFC was to see which of eight fighting styles would win in a tournament style, whether it was a boxer, karate uh, specialist, jujitsu, sumo, you name it. All these options there, and. The footage of UFC 1 they got in the film, it was just brutal, bloody. You can see why it took so long for it to take hold. But the the UFC does eventually get into position to become a sensation in America, mostly through shrewd work from Data White and the Fertitta brothers who end up buying the company for $2 million and selling it for over $4 billion a couple of decades later. This film focuses on the rise of the friendship between TRTs and Chuck Liddell, which they were two of the biggest stars on the circuit. Once Dana White's team takes over, they try and set up a fight between the pair to help promote this. Chuck Liddell is down for it immediately. Tito is a harder bargain for various reasons. And he has several mentions throughout the film, but this sort of leads to a disintegration, disintegration of the friendship. And that's a parallel that goes throughout this film. And we also get some deep, deep thoughts on them on some personal troubles they've dealt with. Chuck Liddell tells a great story about, it's not great for him, but like when he was like being carried by his mother, his father pulled out a shotgun, literally turned around and tried to shoot his mother's womb while he was in it because he didn't want the baby. So that happened. Then Chuck Liddell's father left the family when he was, I think, two years old. And then years and years and years later, after Liddell becomes successful, he tries to get in his wife. And Chuck was not happy about that. That was very raw emotion from Chuck Liddell there. That was a good story point. Tito Ortiz, we hear a lot about the drama he had with Janet Jameson when when he was dating her. When he has these feuds with Dana White and... A lot of good stuff there. And another interesting tidbit from this film was both of them reflected on sort of how hard it was for them to let go of the sport after they were done. Like Chuck Liddell desperately did not want to quit UFC. He got his butt kicked a few times at the end, eventually retires. Tito Ortiz, similar kind of deal where he's just not winning at the rate he used to. At the end of the movie, they have this third fight where they go to Golden Boy Promotions with Oscar De La Hoya's company, set up a, a pay-per-view fight in Vegas to give them a third matchup. Two previous they had done in UFC, Chuck Liddell had won. This was, I think, when Chuck was 48 and Tito was 44, somewhere around that age range. Dana White admits in the film, that I would never have sanctioned this fight. Whoever was doing this is out of their minds. Tito wins, but it just shows that both of them have so much trouble letting go of ultimate fighting. The last two-thirds of this movie, very compelling. I was intrigued by it. I was hooked. But it does start off very slow. It takes you a little bit to get into. I feel like about a third of the movie is when it really starts getting better. And 
I think it also loses marks for just pure arrogance out of Dana White because I could not stand listening to him in half of this movie because he sounds like such an arrogant prick. And I get that's part of the appeal of the UFC fans, but for the casuals like me, that's a big, big turnoff. Those bring it down a notch. I give it a B minus. I'd say it's a solid entry. I think if you like it, if you're a big UFC fan, you'll get a lot out of it. If you're a casual who likes good drama, you'll get a lot out of it. But I don't think it's essential watching. That's my that's my take on Chuck and Tito. All right, and that will do for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Rob Wolkenbride, for calling in to talk all about the New York Knicks. I also want to thank Ian Sachs for taking the time to do some NFL picks in this week's edition of Show Me the Money. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including my look at what's going on with the Met managerial search. And boy, they I don't trust them right now. They're scaring me. Check out the blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. You can subscribe there. Find all our old episodes, including my bonus watching podcast with John Stanko earlier this week, where we broke down the series premiere of the HBO show Watchmen. Feel free to your feedback and star ratings as well. It will help make this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet me at the hashtag, nailed it, at the end of this week's show. Later on this week, I have yet another bonus podcast for you. I'm going to be speaking to John Schmelk from WFAN, the host of the Bank Shot Podcast. We'll talk some more Knicks. Talk a little Giants as well. Until then, I hope you have a better week than Chargers fans. <laughs>